Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your beauty of character, the way you've constructed your universe. Thank you for this opportunity to study today. May your spirit join us, and may we draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Before we get into the lesson, I wanted to read a couple of emails that I received this week. This first is from the Philippines. It's a greeting from the Philippines. I thank the Lord I found this site. I can't find enough words to express how happy I am. I found Dr. Jennings' teachings about love, his true character, his plan of salvation for the lost humanity. Now all my questions pertaining to God's love and his judgment in the second coming of Jesus are clearly answered. His teachings about the character of God is really transforming. How I wish I can have, uh, have his free CDs and DVDs, but I'm in the Philippines. <laughs> and I want to tell for all those living outside the U.S., the good news is all of our free resources are available for free for streaming. So you just have an internet connection, you can stream it all. So there you have, you can have it all. So that's great. Uh, also received this one. It says, I've uh, recently found your ministry. We're studying Revelation. It's been really difficult to listen to teaching that is so different from your interpretation. God has put into my heart John 17.3. Remember, John 17.3 is, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, who now is sent. And ever since then, I have been uh, just praying it. My mind has been open to complete love, and I have a difficult time listening to teachings that are not love. Please pray for me. I understand that taking on the life of Christ includes persecution. Um, praying that I can find others in my community that are lovers of truth. I suppose my request is mainly for prayer. Thank you. So there's people out there that are looking to connect. And then I received an article emailed to me this week. Uh, and in this article, it's a long article, but in this article, there was this individual, Dr. Simi, and I don't know who the Dr. Simi is, but he, uh, he uh, has this little story he tells in the middle of this article. It says, some years ago, I went to an American university where I did my work in church history, and I met one of my church history teachers, and in conversation with him, he said, you'd be very surprised to know what my present assignment is. So I said, yes, I I might be. What is it? Well, I've been spending about two months at the White Estate Vaults. And these are not Adventists, folks. And uh, and I said, what conclusion did you come to? Well, he said, the World Council of Churches has been picking up the tab. They wanted me to uh, comment on the question of Ellen G. White because of Dr. Handpicker's previous statement. I've been investigating, and they have been very courteous, and they gave me every facility, but, he said, the thing that amazes me about the Seventh-day Adventists, and the thing that amazed me particularly about the White Estate, was how they ever got any work done. That phone, it buzzed from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. The questions, the kind of questions which any person with common sense ought to be able to answer, they would have to inquire what Ellen White said about it. Wow. So evidently, some non-Adventists have picked up on, on the struggle that some Adventists have with believing obvious truths without a confirming Ellen White statement to say it's okay to believe it. Sadly, many people have been raised not to think for themselves. Not to become mature Christians, as Hebrews 5.14 says, those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong, but instead have been conditioned to look to some authority to tell them the answer. And for those who need an Ellen White quote, this is not what Ellen White taught. This is... um, from Education, page 17. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator, individuality, power to think and to do. The men whom, in whom this power is developed are to be men who bear responsibility, and I would say the people rather than the men. This is, this is back in the day where the men used humanity, basically. It's, it's, it's really a gender-neutral statement when she wrote it. 
Uh, it is the work of true education to develop this power to train the youth to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. I just love that. It's a great quote. And it says, um, it goes on to say, we must study the truth for ourselves. No man should be relied upon to think for us. No matter who he is or in what position he may be placed, we are not to look upon any man as a criterion for us. And that would include her. That would include her. So what makes us vulnerable to be so easily confused and therefore so willing and eager to have someone else tell us the answer? We have fallen victim, I think, to the misunderstanding of sola scriptura. The idea that scripture must be kept separate from science and experience. Rather than integrating our understanding of scripture with how reality actually works as God's constructed his universe. But God has given us three threads of evidence we've talked about in our class before. Scripture, science, experience, all integrated together. And you remember the Bible quotes for that. All scriptures God breathed and useful in teaching, correcting, training, righteousness. God's divine nature has been seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. Check me out. But for those of you who, based on reason, evidence, logic, and scripture, can't come to that conclusion, here's an L. White quote for you. Uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 125. (laughs) The great storehouse of truth is the word of God, the written word, the book of nature, and the book of experience in God's dealing with human life. So, all right, we're going to move on to our lesson. Um, I just, I just wanted to share that with you because, you know, I've kind of poked a little fun at this idea periodically about, um, presenting evidences that are compelling in their own right. They stand compelling in, in testable evidences that some will still say, well, what did Ellen White say? What did Ellen White say? And so when I had this article and I read this, I just, I just couldn't let that pass. I had to share that, that evidently it's not just me who's picked up on this process. So we're doing lesson number six, rebellion and redemption, victory in the wilderness. And the memory text is Luke 19.10, and it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. First thing I thought, well, what do you hear Jesus saying his mission was? What is his mission? And if, if your process is going, say, can you think of any other statements of Jesus where he declares his mission? This is a mission statement. Seek, let's say the Son of Man is seeking to save that which was lost. Mission statement. Can you think of others? Come to declare the truth about God. Okay, come to declare the truth about God. John 17. John 17. Seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, or um, the, the pardon, yes. How about John 3, 16 and 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what's 17 say? He did not come to condemn the world, but through him to save the world. So there's another mission statement. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. I made you known. Yeah, there you go. Thank you for clarifying that. So part of his mission statement, and these are not these are not mutually exclusive or opposite missions. They're they're confluences. In other words, in order to seek and to save, he had to make God known as part of the process of of that mission. How about Matthew twenty twenty six through twenty eight? Whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The mission statement, he's come to do what? Which direction is the energy and the service flowing? Luke 9.22 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. So with all these statements together, what do you hear his mission? His mission to heal, to save, to recover that which was lost, to serve, to ransom. What does it mean to ransom? To release from captivity. To release from captivity. So what holds us captive? So one thing that holds us captive are the lies that we believe about God, such that we don't trust him. What's the ransom price necessary to free us from, the, from, that, from that bondage? Truth. Truth. So what's one of the things we've already discussed? He came to reveal the truth, to destroy the lies which sets us free. And what else holds us captive? Okay, fear, which is part of what? Our carnal nature, our fallen nature. Okay, so we're held captive by our own fallen nature. And Christ came to develop a new human nature for us. And thus, if you understand the ransom price, because the ransom price is often viewed through that imposed law construct as a price paid in a legal construct of a legal debt to get out of legal trouble. But that's not what holds us captive. We're not held captive by a legal construct. We're held captive by the lies we believe in our own nature. So let's read the last paragraph as we dig into this aspect of what Christ did for us a little further. It says, uh, This week, as we look to the temptations in the wilderness, we can see, as perhaps never before so clearly revealed in the Bible, the great controversy between Christ and Satan as it openly battled between them. Christ, excuse me, Satan had claimed that the world is his, and Christ came to win it back. And central to his winning it back was the plan of salvation. Having failed to kill Jesus After his birth, Satan tried another way to sabotage the redemption of the race. This we see unfold in the wilderness temptations. Before we get to the wilderness temptations, did Satan try to kill baby Jesus? Yes, absolutely. We see that very clearly, that he inspired Herod to send out the soldiers. A bunch of babies did get killed, but Jesus had escaped. But consider the implications in light of the penal substitution theology that is ubiquitously accepted across Christianity and the false law construct upon which it's based. So it's taught in that view that sin is breaking God's law, which not only requires a legal payment, but God is personally offended and incites wrath, and and that wrath must be assuaged or propitiated. And thus, the only way to resolve the wrath and pay the penalty is the shedding of the blood of God's innocent son. And this is the payment necessary to, to pay both the legal penalty and assuage the wrath of God. Was baby Jesus sinless? Was he God's son? Were evil men attempting to kill him as an infant? Then why stop it? I mean, if what is needed to save humanity is for a payment of the innocent blood of the Son of God to resolve our legal debt and to assuage the wrath of his father, we could have had that done right then. Why stop it? Because a legal payment was never necessary, ever. It wasn't the issue. It's all a false law construct. And if baby Jesus would have been killed, I'm going to go as far as to say, it would have prevented the plan of salvation from being carried out. It would have stopped God from fulfilling his mission through Christ to save humanity. That's why God didn't allow that to happen. So with that in mind then, think through. What was needed then? What If, if it wasn't some legal payment, some substitutionary death in some legal construct of a heavenly courtroom, what was needed for the salvation of the human race? Revelation of the true character of God. Revelation of the true character of God, part of what was needed. 
Ask it this way. What was the problem that sin caused in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? What was the problem caused by their sin that the plan of salvation was designed to fix? Humanity was damaged. Ah, so humanity. And so you think that through. When Adam sinned, and you can, and, and this is the kind of logic trail you have to go through when you're talking to people who are still stuck in that other mode. You have to ask them, when Adam sinned, did God get changed? No. When Adam sinned, did God's law get changed? No. When Adam sinned, did the human species get changed in some way? Yes. Then however you construct the plan of salvation, the impact, the action point, the, the transformation process, the, the, it, it is not on God and it is not on God's law. It has to be in the human species some way in order to fix what got, what got broke there. Does that make sense to everyone? So killing baby Jesus would actually have prevented that from happening because baby Jesus did, would not have been able to accomplish his work, which was actually to live out a perfect human life. And specifically, what was that work? Let's start with some Bible text. Hebrews 2.14. That he took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in bondage all their life by their fear of death. So one of the things he came to do was to destroy the devil's power. Now, I've done this multiple times in here, so somebody else besides me do the Bible math and tell us what the devil's power is. What is the devil's power? The power of death. It says it's the power of death. Okay, destroy, destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. All right, Simon, go ahead. It's the, the lies that he tells that take away the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, and the true knowledge of God is eternal life. Right, and put that together with the Bible texts that support that. Like we already said life eternal is knowing God. Knowing God, so eternal death is. So his power, the lies that he tells about God to keep us from knowing him. That's the devil's power, the power of death. Okay, It makes perfect sense. All fits together. Great. He destroys them by revealing the truth, destroys his power by revealing the truth about who God is. Then those lies have no power over us. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What do you understand this is saying? Heavenly things, heavenly beings are reconciled? Beings who have not rebelled, beings who are sinless are being reconciled through the cross? What's going on with that? Any thoughts? I mean, it all goes back to the very controversy. And, you know, while the, uh, well, in heaven, when there was no sin, and sin arose, it was so strange to them that their minds were just as confused. Uh, you know, I mean, you can see the great controversy play out, and um, you know, for the angels that that sided with Lucifer and Satan, you know, they were they were removed, but there's still question in the minds of those that were up there. You know, what was this all about? And you get glimpses of that backstory throughout the Bible when when. Uh in the book of uh, Job, where, where Satan comes walking to and fro on the earth, and the sons of God have come, you see this backstory kind of playing out through Scripture. They were exposed to the lies. Right. And while they chose loyalty, not every question has been answered. An example I kind of give would be, imagine that um, you were the pastor of a church, and one of your sons went through the church quietly calling people aside and, and saying, will you pray for my dad? because I understand he's been embezzling money from the church's bank account. And now while there's no truth, you haven't taken any penny. 
uh, if you get up in front of the church and simply go, declare your innocence, it's not true, I haven't taken any penny, is, is the church convinced? What, what's needed to convince the church? Auditor. An auditor to come in and audit the books and show that every penny has been accounted for and, the, and you haven't taken it. Evidence is needed. That's what's needed. And so that's what's happening. Even those who are on your side, who, who I just can't believe it, they still want the evidence, don't they? Yeah, and then even there, you know, the reference of sin to them was so foreign that for them to to be told, you know, what is? Can you imagine the time Jesus was telling uh, the the heavenly hosts, uh, "Well, Lucifer sinned." I can imagine the first question would be, "What is sin?" And then, "Well, sin is against the law." I, I mean, the law was such a natural form back there that if you try to describe something going outside the law and they don't have a reference point. You know, the only the only alternative would be to allow sin to take its full exposure, and that's what you know happened when Lucifer came down here. The exposure of sin became to the point of they said, "Well, if you take it to the fullest extent, he's going to want to even kill the Most High," and that's what happened on the cross. So this is out of a Bible Echo, July 15, eighteen ninety three. It says, "Through the plan of salvation, a larger purpose, <coughs> excuse me, a larger purpose is to be wrought out, even." than the salvation of man and the redemption of the earth. Through the revelation of the character of God in Christ, the beneficence of the divine government will be manifested before the universe. The charges of Satan against God refuted. The nature and result of sin made plain. The perpetuity of the law fully demonstrated. Satan had declared that the law of God was faulty and that the good, good of the universe demanded a change in its requirements. Hopefully you guys are thinking and processing, how do you understand those words? Are you thinking rules, law that operates like human beings make, a system of legislated acts that we then have to enforce coercively? Or are you thinking as through the lens of the designer, the creator, who builds the space, time, and fabric of the cosmos? His laws are the laws upon which reality functions. How do you hear it when when you hear those things? Uh, in attacking the law, he thought to overthrow the authority of its author and gain for himself the supreme allegiance. But through the plan of salvation, the precepts of the law were to be proved perfect and immutable. Why perfect and immutable? Because life is perfectly designed to operate in harmony with these protocols. It's like the law of respiration. It's perfect and immutable. Um, that, that, as, that at last one tide of glory and love might go up throughout the universe, ascribing glory and honor and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The inhabitants of all the worlds will be convinced of the justice of the law in its in the overthrow of rebellion and the eradication of sin. When man, beguiled by Satan's power, obeyed excuse me, disobeyed the divine law, God could not, even to save the lost race, change that law. Why? Why could he not change the law? If you understand Impose law constructs, simply rules. Well, he wants it this way. Why couldn't he change the holiness from Saturday to Sunday? He's, he's God. He can do anything. It doesn't make any sense. He must want people to suffer. He should have changed law, right? But when you understand design law stuff, the only way to change the law is to destroy the universe as we know it. Because suddenly, we were destroying gravity. We're destroying um, space-time continuums. We're destroying the actual protocols upon which everything he's built functions. And you can't do that without actually destroying the entire universe. Tim, yes. that passage gives some good insight to how Satan, his mindset was from the beginning and how he tempted angels that looked on God's face to fall by, by, by 
inculcating into their minds that God's law was imposed, even in heaven. Yep, that's the, this is the root to it all. God is love, and to change the law would be to deny himself, to overthrow those principles. Notice, principles, not rules, protocols. Those principles upon which, which are bound up the good, uh, the good of the universe. The working out of the plan of salvation reveals not only to men, but to angels the character of God, and through the ages of eternity the malignant character of sin will be understood by the cost to the Father and the Son of the redemption of, of a rebel race. In Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, all worlds will behold the marks of the curse, and angels as well as men will ascribe honor and glory to the Redeemer, through whom they are all made secure from apostasy. The efficacy of the cross guards the redeemed race from the danger of a second fall. The life and death of Christ effectually unveils the deceptions of Satan and refutes its, his claims. The sacrifice of Christ for a fallen world draws not only men but angels unto him in bonds of indissoluble union. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So, so two things so far. Um, he reveals the truth that destroys lies and sets us free from the lies we believe. He also um, reconciles to himself all things, things in heaven as well as things on earth. Next point, 2 Timothy 1.10. Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now this is a profound passage. A passage that has basically been tossed out of... Out of um, out of much of Christianity, in many ways, destroy death. Do you, most Christians teach that Christ paid the death penalty? Not destroyed death, but paid death penalty. They're not the same. So, question, how, did, how does the death of Christ destroy death? What is the basis of life? Knowing God, or unity with God, or being one with God, or being harmony with God, or being reconciled to God. This life eternally meant no you. So basis of life is, is in, so where does life originate? In us? Or in God? So it has to be connected, we have to be reconciled and connected back to God. This is the basis of life. What then causes death? Severing that connection with God. Anything that severs that connection with God. So, what did Christ's death accomplish that destroys death? The complete self-sacrificingness, the complete love that God is. And it's those two things that we mentioned earlier. One, it completely destroys the lies that sever people's trust in God. It completely destroys those. But it also destroyed, if you like this language, some people like this language, it really helps them, destroyed the carnal nature. But it destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness with all of us struggle. Remember, Christ was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, the scripture says. And we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. And the root desire, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were naked. They were afraid. And that fear, that fear that drives us to act in self-interest, to exploit, to take advantage, that is part of the, 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 uh, the infection of sin that, that, that traps us and holds us bound. Christ was tempted in every way just like we are. And you can see in Gethsemane, he has terrible human emotions that tempt him to, to save himself. Father, if be possible, this cup pass from me. And over again on the cross, over and over, this temptation keeps coming back at him. But he chooses instead in his human brain to love, to say no to that, to deny self. Tim, yes. does, it, does it destroy death 
because at the cross we see that um, unity with God, when that's separated, when that's cut off, that's what causes death, so that it's our choice to either stay united with God for life or to separate and, and choose death. See, he was a member of the human species. The human species was connected back to, Christ, back to God in the person of Jesus Christ. He, took, he partook of a condition which he did not choose. He was made to be sin, though he knew no sin. Right? Okay? So he partook of our infirmities, our iniquities, through his joining with Mary. And thus, he was tempted in every way just like we are, but he was able to develop within himself a perfect human character in harmony with God's original design for mankind in Eden. And at the cross, those two antagonistic powers, if you will, that save self, survival of the fittest, fear, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, is tempting him. And love for God and love for others, God's original design is driving him. And he chooses to identify his individuality, his identity, his personhood with divine principles and denies the temptation, thus crucifies that nature at the cross. And thus he rises on the third day in a humanity that was perfected, if you will, by his actions. Free of that. And thus he becomes, it says in Hebrews 5, 8, that once he is made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. I thought he was always perfect. What does made perfect mean? No, he was always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity. And in Christ, character cannot be created. It must be developed by the individual action of the free will sentient being. And Christ developed a perfect human nature, a perfect human character, and destroyed the infection at the cross. This is why he rose again. Because the principles, if you will, of life, the law of love, he perfectly reproduced back into the human nature that he actually assumed. And this is why he could actually predict, just like I can predict if I drop these, if I let go, I can predict what will happen. And I don't have a I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have the gift of prophecy. I can predict because of God's laws and how the universe works. Christ could predict he would rise again because he restored the law upon which life is 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 designed to operate in himself perfectly. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering how important was it f- to reveal also the character of Satan as a liar and a murderer in this? Yes, yes, we, we covered that point just a moment ago, and that, that's an essential point as well, that Satan had to be revealed as a liar and a murderer and a fraud as well. So that, that, was, that was an essential part for others. Christ did not have to reveal that for himself. That piece he did not have to reveal for him to know. He knew that piece. But to be able for what he was achieving at the cross to be effectual in the lives of others and effectual in the unfallen beings in the universe, then he had to reveal the truth about himself and expose Satan as a liar. That's true. That, was, that, that seemed to be a very big turning point in the, you know, in the Desire of Ages in that chapter. It is finished uh, for the angels, for, the, for those who have been watching all that time. For them, this was a big turning point when they saw that yeah, Satan had revealed himself as a murderer in taking the life of Christ, it says in Zara of Ages. Great quote in there. And it's an important quote because there are some people who teach in the penal view that justice requires that, that death, you know, that, that God punish sin and God must execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. And in this execution, the Son of God takes the sinner's place according to God's will. Do you know what I was just quoting, anyone? That was a quote. I was quoting the 27 fundamental beliefs of the Baptist Church. Okay? And thus they have God killing Christ at the cross. Because they have the wrong law. 
and they have the wrong law, they have the wrong outcomes. Yes. So how then does that crisis achieving this uh, perfection of character do anything for us? Oh, can you pause one second? Because that's that. I want to finish building this point, and then we go to the application phase. So we're right now talking about if you want to use that that healing design medical model, the uh, the establishment of the remedy, the creation of the remedy, the development of the remedy, and you're asking how does that get applied? How do we apply the remedy? How do we take the remedy and put it in people's lives? Which is a second second question. It's an important question. So let's let's finish the the establishment, and then we're going to apply it. Okay, great question. All right, so. Um, and so I, I, I presented this to you. I've given you some Bible quotes. We've walked through it reasonably. We understand how to, But do we need an Ellen White quote? <laughs> so here's a quote from Zarvage 623. The grain of wheat that preserves its own life can produce no fruit. It abides alone. Christ could, if he chose, save himself from death. But should he do this, he must abide alone. He could bring no sons and daughters to God. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground could, and to die can he become the seed of the vast harvest, the great multitude that out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people are redeemed of God. With this truth, Christ connects the lesson of self-sacrifice that all should learn. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. All who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. Self-love, self-interest must perish. And the law of self-sacrifice, I love this language, the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. Did you hear that? The law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husband preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. Every breath you get, take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants, the plants give back oxygen to you, and never any circle of giving. To give is to live. You must cast away your carbon dioxide. If you hoard it to yourself with a plastic bag over your head, you're transgressing the law, and the wages of that is death. See, it all fits together beautifully. To give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who, for Christ's sake, sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. The life spent on self is like the grain that is eaten. It disappears, but there is no increase. A man may gather all he can for self. He may live and think and plan for self, but his life passes away and he has nothing. The law of self-serving is the law of self-destruction. Now that's, you notice the word, she's using the word law in here. Notice, but she's, she's clearly operating, connecting it to this, uh, this sowing and reaping of design law. This is not a system of imposed rules that if you don't do it, then I'm going to keep track and you didn't share and I've got a list and then I'm going to have to punish you because, uh, no, it's who we become. And then, 1 John 3.8 the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. To destroy the devil's work. Anybody want to venture what the devil's work on earth has been? His primary work, the one work that he's worked most to achieve. Well, he just got it, man. 
There it is, to deface the image of God in man. Remember, human beings were created in God's image. We were the, the showcase. If you read some of Ellen White's writing, she talks about the law put into a jewel case and so forth and put on display and so forth. God's law, as, as we understand it, is a living law. It cannot be fully understood or even really barely understood written on stone. It can only be genuinely understood in its original setting, which was in the hearts of living beings. I will write my law on your heart and mind, the new covenant experience. That's where it was supposed to be because it's the law of life. It's the law of giving. It's the law of service. And it can only be understood in that light. Think about, again, we could take a a cheek swab from you guys and we could take it to a lab and we could actually print out your genetic code. And we did that, we could say we have a transcript of who you are. So some people say, well, the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. We could do that. We have a transcript of who you are today with your genetic code. But looking at the transcript, do we know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your smile, the embrace of your hug, the the compassion of your heart? Do we know that by looking at the code? No. This is a dead way to look at someone. And the written law is a dead way to look at God's character. And, And the right understanding of God's law is written in the living beings. And thus, this is where God originally put it in Adam and Eve. Satan has worked to efface this in man and to write his law while selfishness and survival of the fittest where God's law should be. So, from Lift Him Up, page 48. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God, and designed to be a counterpart of God. But Satan has labored, what's another word for labored? Worked. Labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him his own image. Jesus destroyed that work by perfectly restoring the image of God in the species human, in the humanity upon which Jesus took upon himself. And then we, I quoted this quote already, but Hebrews 5, 8, 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We talk about this, developing a perfect character. Here's a Star of Ages quote. You notice I'm doing, I'm, I'm pretty much every one of these points I'm making from scripture and evidence and other sources. There's an Ellen White quote that supports it. It's not really hard to do. I just hate the fact that we always have to do it. But Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What is God's law claiming? Why is it claiming this? For the same reason the law of respiration requires that you breathe. Because this is how life is constructed. That's what it requires. If you want to live, you've got to breathe. If you want to live, you've got to be set right in heart and motive and mind. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. In other words, he stands as the head of humanity now. This is the human species. And you understand the species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. Get your mind around that. As long as we have one panda alive on earth, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus Christ's victory, the human species will exist for eternity. Because he became a real human being. The question is, how many other specimens will join him? Continuing on with the quote. These he offers, uh, his life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are past. This is pretty profound. Do you think she says remission of sins for the past through the blood payment made? 
Get, notice what she says. Remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. No payment. Wasn't a legal problem. More than this, Christ imbues man. Here's going to your question, Karen. Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and he can be just and the justifier of him who believes. It's right for him to fix it, and he then makes us right, those who trust him. So Jesus said to his apostles, here's a Bible quote on this idea. It's expedient for you that I go. When I go, the Spirit will come. And the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. And thus, the Spirit comes and brings truth to destroy lies, to win us to trust. And when we're one to trust, what do we do with our hearts? We open our hearts. Lord, come in. And the Spirit comes in and takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have a new heart and right spirit. We have circumstances of the heart by the Spirit. We have the law written on the heart. We have the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. We get the mind of Christ. All the metaphors are really talking about a supernatural process in which we get new insights, new wisdom, new motives, new character. And it is a joint operation, if you will, just much like a patient and a doctor doctor may develop a remedy for a disease, diagnose actually the patient who is convicted of their condition and trust the doctor, and the doctor provides the remedy, the patient still must partake the remedy. Now, partaking the remedy, the patient does not save or heal themselves. They don't fix themselves, but they must have an active role in participation and partaking. Many Christians get this whole construct gets broken down under the legal paradigm. Well, we have no work to do. And if, we, if we're doing any work, no, Christ did it all. And so they have this legal paradigm that everything was done, past, present, and future. All of our sins were laid on Christ at the cross and paid in him. We have a complete atonement achieved at the cross. This is penal substitutionary ideas. And this is what, and these ideas trap Christians in a powerless Christianity. They have a form of godliness, but no power. Why? Because there's no active participation for them. They just accept a legal payment and it gets accounted to some books in heaven and when investigative judgment happens and the books are open, they have a legal pardon stamp by all their sins, even the ones they haven't committed yet because they've past, present, and future all put on Christ and I've already accepted my legal payment. So it's boom, stamp, boom. But that's not the process. The process is that we actually become partakers of the divine nature. It's a daily, I die daily, Paul says, that Christ is working in his spirit temple to reproduce in us his character. And thus our thoughts are brought into unity with his thoughts. Our desires are brought into unity with his. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. Anybody know what that quote was from? That's Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. 311, 411. 311 or 411? I can't remember off the top of my head. Did that answer your question yet, Karen? Okay. So what... Was it Christ came to achieve? He came to achieve a revelation of truth to destroy lies and to secure the universe unfallen. To destroy the infection of fear and selfishness in the human species that got put there by Adam's fall. To restore God's image in the human species to cleanse the temple, the spirit temple, and to develop a perfect human nature, human character. And Here's one last LNG White quote I'm going to share with you on this topic, and then we're going to get that question in the back. Zara of Ages 626. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. This he said, signifying that death he should die. This is the crisis of the world. If I become the propitiation for the sins of, the, of men, the world will be lighted up. Notice, if Christ dies, the world will be lighted up. What's lighted up mean? Truth will be revealed, right? That's what it means. Okay? Satan's hold upon the souls of men will be broken. Notice, who, what's going to be broken? What powers? Satan's hold upon our souls, on our characters. The lies will be broken, and the selfish and carnal natures will be broken. Okay? And the defaced image of God will be restored in humanity. This is what she says in this quote. All three things. And the family of believing saints which finally inherit the heavenly, will finally inherit the heavenly home. This is the result of Christ's death. What is the result? The world will be lighted up. Satan's hold on the souls of men will be broken. Lies will be, will be destroyed. Uh, selfishness will be broken. And, the, and um, the defaced image of God will be restored in humanity. This is what he came to do. But the work of human redemption is not all that is accomplished by the cross. The love of God is manifest to the universe. The prince of this world is cast out. The accusations of Satan has brought against God are refuted. The reproach which he has cast upon heaven is forever removed. Angels as well as men are drawn to the Redeemer. I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all unto me. Profound. Okay, what's the question from our online listener? One of the online listeners says, if nothing needs to happen here on the earth, why the last 2,000 years? I, I don't understand the question. Of course things need to happen here on the earth. Lots of things need to happen on the earth. Millions and billions of things need to happen on the earth. Because there are millions and billions of people that need to be partaking of the remedy in order to have their characters healed and set right with God. And so, yes, lots of things are happening on the earth. Sunday. First and second paragraph. Why did Jesus come to the earth to be with us? First, he came to, to restore the dominion of Adam. We catch glimpses of the royal aspect of Jesus having dominion, which he inspired crowds and so forth and so on. His power over creation, his ability to restore broken humans uh, in, to wholeness and, and heal and over nature and calm storms and so forth. Some versions of, what do you think this idea that, that Christ came to reclaim a dominion from Satan? How is that idea right? How is that idea warped in a certain way? Is it right that he came to reclaim intelligent beings from the deceptions and the distortions and the selfishness and the survival of the fittest drive to reclaim them back to a kingdom of love and truth? Is that right? Absolutely right. Was it ever part of his mission to battle over territories, uh, you know, parsecs of, of the universe that, that were somehow under the government of Satan, that Satan had some legal right or, do, or legal authority on planet Earth? No. This, there's this idea in Christianity that Satan had a legal dominion on Earth because Satan makes the claim, all these kingdoms are mine, but, but that's Satan's claim. God doesn't operate under Satan's way of ruling the world. They were never Satan's. Adam had rulership and a dominion on earth as a subordinate to Christ. So when Adam was deceived and was displaced and Satan kind of took over Adam's position, he was still subordinate to Christ. Christ was still the rightful ruler of earth, always was. That never changed. So there was never, there's no legal battle. There was no dominion battle. There was a battle for the hearts and minds of intelligent beings. 
Now, this is some interesting. I had these ideas this week. I'm going to pass them by you. Do you think all the powers we see in the life of Christ, remember when Christ was on earth, walking on water, calming storms, um, healing people, which was, think about, if you think about this, person born blind, and, and, and he heals the blind man. What was going on there? Neural, neural rewiring, brain structure, uh, data download. Do you understand that this guy had a data download? Because um, there is no reference for the blind man on what a color is. There's no reference to the blind man what round is. There's no reference to the he, uh, people who have had been blind from birth today and some um, medical intervention gives them sight. They often don't know what an object is by looking at it. They have to touch it and feel it. And then it registers in their brain because their database doesn't have that. And, and then they have to build a new database based on their touch reference to the visual references and build a visual database. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. Well, this blind man could see and he understood right away. There was an incredible amount of, of data of, of uh, neural restructuring. He had to build a, an occipital cortex that would have atrophied because it was never used in, in op- optic nerves and eyeballs. And there had to be some type of a database and insight of wisdom and understanding that he understood what he was seeing. Tremendous power there. Now, you understand all that's clearly within God's ability because none of that has to do with character development, does it? Okay? And so God can do that for any of us. He can give us... This is like the gift of tongues. Somebody could quickly have an entire new language that they can speak. God can give that kind of data download. And that doesn't affect our freedom as beings. It doesn't violate our, our freedom uh, of, 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 uh, of a sentient being. So, question though. With all this in mind, do you think Adam, prior to his fall, had such power? That Christ, being the right ruler as a human on earth, was simply exercising the powers that, that human beings were to have all along that Adam had prior to his fall. The power to heal? Well, there was nothing to heal, but he would have had that power had he been here. For instance, I would suggest, what, what was Adam wearing prior to his fall? Some type of energy. We don't know what it was exactly. But do you think Adam, for instance, had, had insight into genetics of living organisms? Yes, much more than us. I think he did. Do you think he, do you think he could have hybridized plants? Have a hybrid, have two plants, but do it in the clumsy way we do? Or maybe with his energy from his own thought patterns, go in there and just epigenetically modify so this next generation of this particular plant comes out with new flowers? Could he have done something like this? Could he have telekinesis, moved things? Could he have walked, could Adam walked on water? Or breathed underwater. Or, or yes, breathed underwater even, yes. Okay. Um, Does anything I'm suggesting in any way violate God's design, God's law, freedom of conscience, the way God runs his universe? Any of these things so far violate any of that? It doesn't. It doesn't. Do we need an Ellen White quote? <laughs> Would you feel more comfortable if we had an Ellen White quote? Well, I've got one for you. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 50. While, the, while they remained true to God, Adam and his companion were to bear rule over the earth. Unlimited control was given them over every living, living thing. What kind of control? Unlimited control. We'll keep going, though. 
The lion and the lamb sported peacefully around around them or lay down together at their feet. The happy birds flitted about without uh, w- flitted about them without fear. And as their glad songs ascended to praise of their creator, Adam and Eve united with them in thanksgiving to the Father and the Son. The holy pair were not only children under the Father's care, a fatherly care of God, but students receiving instruction from an all-wise creator. Imagine going to school and God is instructing you about how the world is made and everything. Keep going what they learned. They were visited by angels who were granted communion with their maker with no obscuring veil between. They were full of vigor imparted by the tree of life and their intellectual power was but little less than that of the angels. The mysteries of the visible universe, the wonderful works of God, which were perfect in knowledge, afforded them an exhaustless source of instruction and delight. The laws and operation of nature, which have engaged men's studies for 6,000 years, were opened to their minds by the infinite framer and upholder, capital F, capital U, framer and upholder of all. So they're actually studying nature with God as their instructor. Okay? They held converse, now get this, they held converse with leaf and flower and tree, gathering from each the secrets of its life. Do you think they understood genetics? Yes, they did. Powerful stuff going on here. With every living creature, from the mighty Leviathan that plays in the waters to the insect moat that floats on the sunbeam, Adam was familiar. He had given each its name, and he was acquainted with the nature and habits of all. God's glory in in the heavens, the innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions, the balancing of the clouds, the mysteries of the light and sound and day and night, all were open to the study of our first parents. Astronomy, all this stuff. On every leaf, of the forest or stone of the mountains, in every shining star, in earth and air and sky, God's name was written. The order and harmony of creation spoke to them of infinite wisdom and power. They were ever discovering some attraction that filled their hearts with deeper love and called forth fresh expressions of gratitude. So long as they remained loyal to the divine law, their capacity to know, to enjoy, and to love would continually increase. They would be constantly gaining new treasures of knowledge, discovering fresh springs of happiness, and obtaining clearer and yet clearer conceptions of the immeasurable, unfailing love of God. Is that profound? So do you think Adam could walk on water? I think he could. Do you think he could have telekinetic powers to, to, to you know, converse? I think he could converse with the animals um, if you ever seen in some of the sci-fi stuff these days, you see Aquaman where he can do, 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 and he's talking to that and the fish and they'll see will come to him and do things that he wants them to do. I think Adam could have done any of this with any of these creatures on earth. This is uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 51. I think he absolutely, in the working in the garden, said, you know something? It would be very interesting. I'd like these tendrils to go this way. And rather than working them with his hands, he somehow just causes them to grow that direction. Or maybe he asked the plant. Or he asked the plant. Yes, he has converse with them. He says, would you, uh, you know, hey plant, would you, I'd like to have a little, when Eve comes back today, I'd love to have a heart-shaped thing right here. Let's grow up and, and uh, there's some blue flowers on this side, red ones on this side. Would you mind doing that? There they go. Wouldn't this be cool? See, I think this is all possible. Is this just sci-fi or do you think it's possible? 
Well, let's take it to the dark side. Can you see Satan's jealousy of what Adam and the powers that Adam had, the dominion that Adam had? They hadn't even made children yet. They're going to procreate. God gave them that power too. But just in the governance of this planet Earth, they had a dominion that Satan, that Lucifer never had. A power that Lucifer never had. Living beings of a lower nature. But if you've had animals, you understand animals have, have intelligence. I mean, they can understand your wishes and wants and they can learn and they can, you know, I was a uh, uh, patient this week was telling me that uh, one of my patients has a new dog that she's just gotten. What kind of dog was it? A golden retriever. And she was looking up online golden retrievers and found this video online where this, this family has a couple of golden retrievers and they've trained their golden retrievers to get their groceries out of their car for them. And sure enough, on the video, they come home and, and open the trunk and the golden retrievers go out and bring carry the, carry the groceries into the house for them. <laughs> okay? I mean, you know, animals love to please, don't they? What, what would it have been like before sin? Not only were human beings more intelligent, don't you think animals were too? It's just, it's just profound. So, do you see Satan maybe had envy? He's already broken away from God. He's self-serving. Do you think he was jealous and envious? Do you think he wanted this power for himself? And so he co-ops Adam and Eve, their position, and he uh, usurps some of their authority and some of their power. And what has Satan done with this power in nature? Thorns. Yes! Thorns, thistles, decay, death, viruses. He's corrupted the code. <laughs> I mean, seriously, gene defects, diseases, death. The system's decaying and dying. Satan has corrupted the code, yes. It seems like there's a statement um, around the time of the flood that, um, uh, or just after sin, that God says, I've given you all green leafy things to eat. And yet we know in this current world that we can't eat anything Every green leafy thing we can't eat because some are poisonous. Yep. There's been a change. Yep. Thank you for saying that. I didn't have the Ellen White quote in this one, but the Ellen White has a quote where she says that there was not one noxious plant or poisonous herb in the earth as God made it. All of these things are from Satan's doing. And she quotes the parable of Jesus where he said, it planted good seed. Where did the tares come from? An enemy has done this. An enemy has sown. And then Paul says in, in, he, in Romans chapter 8 that all nature groans under the weight of sin. This, this whole planet is corrupted because of it. I can't imagine what it's going to be like. I sometimes sit around, just use my imagination, and imagine what the earth must have been like in some of these things. I have, I have some pretty wild imagination in some of this stuff. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the serpents prior to the fall flew. They had wings. They flew. And if you, say, if you have a hard time visualizing how could that be, just look at a butterfly and pull its wings and legs, and what do you get? <laughs> I mean, you know... A tiny little snake is what you get, a little worm, okay? So I think that's kind of, they had these wings, and, and they were silver and gold, and, and I, I get this idea that the earth beforehand had this water layer above the earth that, that when the sun would hit it, would, it would diffuse the energy of the sun, kind of like a giant greenhouse, so there were no polar extremes, and up at the North Pole was 75 degrees, and the equator was 75 degrees, and it was beautiful all over the whole planet, it was lush, and, and then, and then, but the, the way this water layer worked, it would, it would, these, 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 I, this is my own theory. I have no. I don't have an L white quote for this. Okay, okay. Um, uh, that these 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 serpent beings that could fly would fly high and they would go up into this water layer like fish do in the other layer. And as they swim, they would cause these ripples and rainbow hues would flow across the sky like a kaleidoscope to to uh, to cause these brilliant patterns for us. We'd look up and say, "Wow, how beautiful is that?" The and the and the 
Um, the rivers and the lakes and the streams and the waterfalls, they weren't made with mud and stone. They were made with sapphires and rubies and diamonds. And, and as the water would cascade in all different types of patterns, it would just be the most brilliant and beautiful thing on earth. And gold and platinum and all this other stuff too were part of how God or, 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 um, uh, just, just, just decorated. decorated. Yeah, it just dec- de- decorated the whole thing. So anyway, now there is a quote, by the way, on the... On the um, the jewels and the and the uh, rubies and diamonds and stuff that's in patriarchs and prophets too where they before the flood were out everywhere and easily accessible so thoughts or questions about any of that is this fun to think about yeah i think uh, so this is one of the reasons why i like sci-fi because sci-fi um sometimes i think they have some of these ideas that they incorporate in that have some basis in truth if you saw the movie avatar anybody see the movie avatar and how at night when they would uh, at night, walk and touch things. Everything had a fluorescence, and the, all the plants would glow and have this beautiful stuff. You know, I, I, you know, I think those things are possible as well. I mean, they were wearing—if there was a night—they were wearing robes of light. So, what was the rest of the planet doing? So, I just can't imagine. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Tim, yes. I think one thing that's really striking me is that how much sin has dumbed humanity down. Oh yes. Yes, how much sin has dumbed humanity down. Absolutely. Yes. So we long, as Paul says, we, we long. All nature groans under this weight. I want to jump down. Boy, there's several different things here in the lesson. I want to jump down to the third paragraph, which says, um, or the fourth paragraph says, Third, Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost and to take away their sins. And I, I don't, we're going to read the rest of it because I just want to stop there. But they reference 1 John twenty one twenty nine. This is uh, John the Baptist speaking. Do you notice they subtly changed what the Bible actually says? Here's what the Bible says. There's a quote from Scripture. You can check any version. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take away the sin of the world. And the lesson says, he came to take away their sins. Do you hear sins the same as sin of the world? Now, sins lead us down that imperialistic law, imposed rules, you broke the rules, you got all the bad deeds and all this other stuff done. Sin, on the other hand, leads us to think about the condition. We have a sinful condition which needs to be healed and to be removed. And he came to take this condition away and restore God's image within us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are, are as Jesus revealed, and your universe is an expression of your character of love, and your law are the protocols upon which all life is built Lord, send your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved. Reproduce it in us. Write your character, your law in our hearts and minds. Give us discernment and wisdom. Restore us back to your ideal that we can represent you faithfully on this planet. We pray in your holy name. Amen.